This is a Federal News Network podcast. At $6 trillion for fiscal 2022, the Biden administration's budget is nothing if not ambitious. It includes more than a $100 billion increase in the so-called discretionary spending to operate the government itself. For early reactions in Congress and how the proposal is likely to fare on the Hill, we turn to Bloomberg Government Editorial Director Lauren Duggan. Lauren, good to have you back. Thanks so much. All right. So just review for us the top line discretionary piece as we understand it from Friday's release. Sure. So that $6 trillion number is the total spending that would occur. Of that, about 25% or $1.5 trillion would come on the discretionary side of the budget. And that's where we see a great deal of the Relations Committee every year. Uh, that's a routine process that they go through and figure out how to allocate that then to both defense programs and non-defense programs. So what, one of the that's different this year than people who have been following this for the last several is there's no Budget Control Act that sets a cap on the defense side and the non-defense side. That had been a, a, a real blocker at times for appropriators trying to do their work because because they would have to reach a deal to increase those caps to provide a level of spending that they wanted. Those caps are gone. Something that Patrick Leahy, the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, welcomed last week is kind of lifting a burden off of his shoulders to do his job and in particular provide money on the non-defense side of the ledger that he wants to see invested in different programs kind of across the spectrum. Yes. Yeah, so we have essentially a slightly up budget on the defense side, enough to not even enough to cover the pay increase, actually. So they're going to have to make some tough decisions over there. On the civilian side of the discretionary portion, then, there is, what, a couple of hundred billion dollars more. None of that includes this, all this infrastructure ideas and so forth. So what uh, what is Congress likely to do when they get this plopped on their desks, you know, as they return this week? Right. And you touched on an important point there. Um, there was a vote in the Senate weeks ago, unrelated to the budget, but on this bill dealing with competitiveness with China. And it was Richard Shelby, who's the top Republican on the Appropriations Committee, and then Jim Inhofe, the top Republican on the Armed Services Committee. And they were trying to argue that you should have parity in increases. So if you're going to increase non-defense, you should increase defense by the same amount. And they were tying it very specifically to the threats that they see needing to be countered with China. But their general idea is we should have parity on both sides. So their amendment didn't succeed. It didn't have the majority vote that it needed, but it pointed to something Republicans are going to want, which is this increase in defense spending. And they will have a say in the Senate where it still is going to take 60 votes, absent a change in the filibuster rules, for Democrats to get their spending bills across the line, either the Senate versions or an eventual conference agreement that rolls everything together. So I think we're going to have to see how that one plays out over time. Um, one of the things that may make it easier is if the chairman and ranking member on the House and the Senate side can come up with some top level numbers. If they have those top level numbers early, it can make the job of dividing money up among the bills a lot easier. So we'll be watching to see once everyone's back in town in June, if they can kick that off and really get that going. And from the proposal, what do the winners look to be? Which agencies? Well, I mean, on the civilian side, most of them are getting pretty significant increases, sometimes even double digit percentage increases. And um, I think one of the biggest is going to be the Department of Education, for example, which would get a major boost. Also, things like the, which not a big surprise moving from the Republican Trump administration to the Democratic Biden administration wanting more money over the Environmental Protection Agency. But 
that's also just on the discretionary side. If you look at the two big proposals that are rolled into this, the American Jobs Plan, which is the infrastructure proposal the president has, and then the American Families Plan, which is more about social services, additional years of both um, early education and community college. If you piece all that together, you can see how that money is going to spider out through all the agencies when you have that mandatory money in that too. But um, Obviously, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure as well, which is a big portion of the jobs plan. Um, and those negotiations are already on Capitol Hill, so we can see how um, some of the twists and turns have been there about how much money they really want to invest on Capitol Hill toward that sort of proposal. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, editorial director of Bloomberg Government. And so for the Hill, then, they really have a lot of work to do because besides the usual work on that $1.5 trillion discretionary budget in the absence of caps, but in the absence also of, of agreement on what the relative sizes and spending on the two defense and civilian sides should be, they've also got these gigantic proposals that are other bills, you know, the infrastructure and so forth. And how are they going to digest all of this in some way that's meaningful? It, it's an excellent question. I mean, one of the nice things is you have committees that can divide this work up amongst themselves. So appropriators will be doing the bulk of the work on that $1.5 trillion in discretionary spending. But um, on the infrastructure side, we saw right before the recess, one of the key Senate committees report out its portion of the surface transportation bill. That's the Environment and Public Works Committee. That's $304 billion already ready to go on traditional roads and highway projects. Um, there's still the transit portion there. And then uh, the safety portion that also has to come out of the Senate package those together. Um, on, on the House side, we're seeing markups get scheduled for right after they come back in June to begin tackling some of those infrastructure questions. So in the House, it's always a little bit easier because once you package a bill together, you can send it to the floor and the majority there can control time. Something gets on the Senate floor, there's no telling how long it's going to take or how many slowdowns you're going to encounter. So I would anticipate a pretty busy summer on both floors as they try to deal with all of these big packages and recess schedules and other scheduling wrinkles that they have going into September as well when they have to face that October 1st fiscal year deadline. So you're right, there's a lot of issues to tackle here. Um, not a lot of time. Um, I, I would anticipate, a, like I said, a very busy summer. And given the importance and the level of disagreement with which they're arguing all of these really big questions, then it would seem they should really work hard. You would expect them to work hard to avoid a continuing resolution come October 1st, because that solves nobody's policy objectives, except, well, maybe the last budget, which is something the Biden administration would consider anathema. And so I wonder if this gives more impetus to actually maybe be on time for the first time in memory. And I would also think that Democrats having control of the White House and both chambers will probably make that a goal too. a unified control. You want to make that um, kind of your pledge as we, we have control, we're, we're going to meet this deadline. But it's going to be a very tall order to get all 12 bills, House and Senate committees and negotiated and, and through by October 1st. It is in the best of years, even when you get a budget in February. And the appropriators this year got an inkling in April with the so-called skinny budget and then have all the details now with what the Biden administration put out on Friday. So they're going to be pouring over this. They've done a lot of the work already with hearings and talking to cabinet level and sub-cabinet level officials. It's still going to be a tall lift um, I, I would think that the CR talk, the continuing resolution talk, will begin at some point in earnest because there's also going to be big issues this summer, like raising the debt limit or addressing that 
probably before they go away for the August recess if they need to, because they don't want that to pose any threat to government operations, obviously, while they're away in August or in early September when the schedule is a little disrupted as well. And of course, overlaying all this is the one bill they do get done every year, which is the National Defense Authorization Act, NDAA, for 2022. And there's a lot of policy riding there developing with respect to sexual assault, domestic disturbances, and what's the best format for handling those, that type of thing. What is that looking like? Well, that's going to be another task that's being delayed because of the slow release of the budget in the eyes, certainly of those committees. We had Adam Smith over on the House side talking about that being delayed, possibly even until September on the House floor, which would be very late. Uh, There's years in the past when the period right before Memorial Day is the target to have that on the floor. So I think we're going to see a delayed action there, try to get that up on the floors later this year. They have to choose between getting the spending bills done or uh, the authorization bill. Sometimes spending wins because that October 1st deadline is a little harder and faster for the spending bills. But I, I would anticipate a lot of action on the NDAA as well. And um, the sexual assault policy that you mentioned, that is going to be a big part of it. There's a pretty bipartisan proposal in the Senate right now that some senators were trying even to begin debating outside of NDAA, although there seems to be a preference perhaps for waiting to debate that as part of the larger package. So um, that's another marquee bill on top of all the other ones we've discussed that is going to make up a pretty big chunk of Congress's agenda. And do you think that they will skip some of the summer recesses they take? I think there's going to be pressure there just because of the amount of work they have to do and the number of items the Biden administration wants them to tackle. Uh, So some of those weeks that were initially committee weeks in the House where they would do things virtually, especially now with the coronavirus restrictions lifting, I could see them in town trying to chip away both the committee work and some things on the floor. Um, so we'll we'll be watching that very closely because it does affect vacation schedules. Yes, and we'll get to see what Nancy Pelosi looks like again. Everybody without their face masks. It's a whole new world. All right. Lauren Duggan is editorial director of Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. 
So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? 
You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision, uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've 
got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.